Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. There we continue to look at these responses to God's call to worship Jesus, God's revelation of Jesus Christ. Today we're going to be considering the response of the religious leaders of Israel there in Jesus' day. If you didn't know it, the religion of Israel in that day had deviated, had entered a new phase of corruption. All of Israel's history leading up to their exile, the thing that they struggled with most was paganism, worshiping false gods. Well, the exile cured them of that sin, but then, though they did not worship false gods anymore, what they did is they looked at Scripture and deviated, as I said, from that and created a god of their own imagination, which was not entirely the god of the Bible. The Sadducees corrupted the god of the Bible with theological liberalism. They demythologized the Bible, so to speak. The Pharisees turned the message of God's grace and salvation to a message of legalism. The chief priests with the Sanhedrin and others corrupted the message of Scripture by using a loose adherence to it to find political gain and power over the people. In all of these various groups, they had scholars called scribes who would ostensibly back them up by distorting Scripture to validate their desires. Here in our text today, the chief priests with their particular scribes are mentioned. The chief priests, they said, have been the leading priests. Of course, there is the, the single chief priest, the leading priest. According to Scripture and tradition, there would be one, but this means the whole group of them, all of his cadre, the, the leading priests of Israel, along with some scholars, some scribes who supported them, were approached by Herod to find out where the Messiah was supposed to be born. He asked them, where can I find the Messiah? Where is Messiah? Where is the Messianic king supposed to be born? And, of course, they tell them in Bethlehem. And it is their response that we're going to look at today as they consider the birth, the advent of Christ, the advent of the Messiah, Messiah, what was their answer, what was their response to this revelation. Of course, the application is, what is your response? What is your answer to the advent? How will you respond to the story and work and person of Christ? Maybe you were here last week and you sort of have patted yourself on the back for not hatefully rejecting Christ as Herod and others do. Now, there's another way you can reject Jesus, and I think this way is more insidious, more devious, more subtle, and I think probably more of a temptation to most of us than it is what we see in Herod's life, and that is the response of these religious people who were indifferent. Let me read to you from Matthew chapter 2. I'm just going to read 3 through 6 because that gives us their involvement, the chief priests and scribes. Verse 3 of Matthew 2. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. This is the word of God. 
I reminded myself this week of what happened in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah 6, Isaiah records for us uh, an account of his calling to become a prophet. Really, initially, his calling to salvation and faith in in uh, the Messiah that had been spoken of by the other prophets, and, and then following on in obedience to become a prophet. And, and this response to the divine revelation of God really gives us a template to our own response to the revelation of Christ. Let me read it for you. This is in Isaiah 6, beginning of verse 1 of the year. That you, King Uzziah, died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And one of the seraphim flew to me, having, his hands, hand, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. Like I said, this passage is Isaiah's calling to become a prophet, really beginning with a cleansing, a salvation of sorts. And it begins not with Isaiah's desires and Isaiah sort of seeking after God and Isaiah doing the right things. It begins with God. It begins with God's desires. It begins with a sovereignly appointed moment where God calls out to Isaiah, giving him a vision of who he is. Most scholars and preachers agree that Isaiah, in his dream, was not necessarily in the temple, but viewing the temple, wasn't actually in the physical temple in this vision. It simply says that God's, the, the, the end of his robe, the train of his royal robes filled the temple. And it says, of course, he took a coal, the angel took a coal from the altar. So the temple's in view, but Isaiah himself in this vision was not in the temple. There he is gazing and above the temples towering this mighty God, these angels all around him singing holy, holy, holy. And the angels give even more description. The earth cannot contain His glory. There's this resounding sound of majestic glory being sung louder and louder. In verse 4, God speaks. The foundations of this visionary temple shake. They're filled with smoke. Many people agree this is a vision of God incarnate, the eternally exalted Christ Jesus on His throne judging the world. He is Yahweh, which is God, what God revealed to himself as Moses, and he's described as Adonai here, which is the exclusive claim of Jesus, exclusive to, exclusive to God and to Jesus, the Lord. He's sitting on his judgment seat, ruler of the universe. Now, as he sees his revelation, what does Isaiah do? Well, hey, Jesus, long time no see, man. What's up? Not at all. 
Isaiah is horrified. He's terrified. Why? Because as his mind, as his heart is opened up to the utter holiness of God, he is made horrifyingly aware of his own lack of holiness. Any true vision of God, in fact, when you see God meeting people in the Scripture, they don't do it casually, they don't do it haphazardly, half-heartedly, with a cavalier attitude. No, they're broken down with an instant awareness of their own lack of holiness, and he does the same. Woe is me, I'm lost, I'm undone. Another way of saying, I will be justly judged. I'm a man of unclean lips. I am a sinner, and I live among sinners, and I should be judged. Woe is, a, is the word for damnation. Woe is me. I should be damned right now, is what Isaiah is saying. For I'm a man of unclean lips. The revelation of God brings him to his knees. It humbles him, makes him realize his own sin, his need for mercy, because the justice and wrath of God should damn him. Well, does God damn him? No. We read it. Instead, God provides atonement. One of the seraphim flew to me, verse 6, having in his hand a burning coal that had been taken with tongs from the altar. He touched my mouth and said, Behold, this is such your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And this means not only did God display His righteous, hot, burning hatred and indignation for Isaiah and Israel's sin, but at the same time, He displayed His love and His willingness to cleanse and forgive. He carried out justice on that altar, but He also carried out an act of justification, making Isaiah pure. What happens next? After He is cleansed, God calls to Isaiah, who will go, and Isaiah, now newly purified, says in verse 8, Here am I, send me. Again, this is a template for salvation, right? God unveils to a person His glory, His holiness, His righteousness, unveils to them His holiness and perfection. Upon seeing that, we come to a point where we realize we are sinners, that we deserve not some sort of reward for attending church or for doing something great. Instead, we realize we would be rightly damned. And we cry out to God, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Forgive me. God has atoned for our sin. We believe in this. And God makes a way of salvation. He makes a way where both His justice and His love are in beautiful display. He calls to us then for submission and abandonment of sin, a life of repentance, and we say, here am I, send me. Well, this is the story that we're going to see come alive in the Magi, the wise men. God reveals Himself to them. He, using the miraculous, using providence, He reveals Himself, unveils Himself to the Magi, and they surrender all to, them, to, to Christ. And they, they come and they worship Him. They go on a long, arduous journey just to worship Him, to give the best of themselves, to fall on their faces and worship Him. And the question really for us as we look at this story in Matthew 2 is, have you done this? Are you doing this? Have you believed in Christ? Have you repented of your sin? Do you respond to the advent of Christ in 
adoration and worship. And this is the message of the story of the wise men. And this is what chapter 2 of Matthew is all about. It's to cause us to respond to Christ in this way, in adoration and worship, faith and repentance. Well, you know that not everybody responds this to the, the, the revelation of Christ in the same way, and we know this from last week. Not everybody responds like the Magi did. We learn that other people respond other ways. We, we see this, and we saw this sort of in our introductory sermon on this. We saw this great revelation of God, Christ coming up, God using both the natural and the supernatural providence and miraculous to unveil for the people of that time the, the advent of Christ, the coming of Christ. And then you have various responses. Last week we saw that first response that some hatefully reject the call to worship Christ. That's Herod. Herod did not want to surrender his money, his power, his role, and so he hated Christ. He despised this would-be king, and he went on a murderous rampage. Herod, in essence, was called both providentially through normal means, through nature, the revelation, they came and they brought him the Scripture and explained to him, this is the king. They, he gave them the truth, and he was also called, in a way, supernaturally. There was this light shining, this star, the, the magi come and reveal to him this, this mysterious miracle that had taken place, and Herod should have responded. He, he was called to worship Christ. He was called to repent, called to believe, and he didn't. Instead, he hated and I thought to myself as I, as I thought about all these different responses and the Magi and the religious leaders here and Herod himself, I, I thought, you know, maybe, maybe we need to just do a little primer on, on calling, God's calling to salvation. What is God's calling? I'm not talking about calling into the ministry or calling to do something special or whatever. I'm talking about God's calling of salvation. There is a, a, a way that we can categorize uh, how God calls the universe. Because in essence, God does call all people to respond. God calls all people to, to look to Him, to worship Him, to, to adore Him. God calls all people to repent, it says in Acts chapter 20. So how is it that God calls? And there's different categories of call. Maybe this will help you make things clear as you read Scripture. First of all, there's a, there is what we call the general call or general revelation. God calls everybody. It's through nature. It's through their own hearts. It's through morality. It's through an inner understanding. Every person. You know, you don't have to sit and argue with a child about the existence of God. Why? Because God puts that in the heart of every man. Every man understands naturally there is a God. There is something greater than them. People understand, just as they understand naturally, it's wrong to murder. It's, it's wrong to steal. People know this they understand this. God puts this in the heart of every person. We learned this uh, back when we studied the book of Romans, chapter 1. We see this, this, this general revelation. God calls everybody. God puts this in the heart of everybody. Romans chapter 1, verse 20, for His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Now, this is a call to worship God. And all people, upon that general revelation that every human gets, they are at that point responsible. 
Now, they don't have the truth of Christ. They don't have the gospel at that point, but they are all responsible to worship. Every human being is, because of general revelation, responsible to worship God simply because of general revelation. There is this general call that God issues every human. He calls them through nature. He calls them through, you might want to call it an an inner understanding that there is a God, that He should be worshiped. And if they do not respond to that call, they are without excuse. Every person is responsible to respond to that call. Again, this is not enough for them to believe the gospel and understand atonement and follow Christ at this point, but it is enough to make them responsible beings. God must still come to them and speak to them internally. Internally, we'll talk about that in a moment. But people, by and large, when that general revelation is given to them, when they begin to see and their reason begins to form in their brain and they begin to resist, God makes that call known to them. Well, like I said, people resist. They refuse the call. They don't worship God. They form false gods or they take the true God of Scripture, as we talked about, the religious leaders of, of Jesus' day. They take the true God and distort Him. They dilute it. They reject the plain, clear interpretation of Scripture and reinvent a God that is not the true God. And God says they are without excuse. The general call of God, the general revelation is resisted, sometimes hatefully, as we see in Herod. There is a resistance that's even worse, though, and that's the resistance of the special call or specific call or special revelation of God. Now, this is the actual truths that we see in Scripture. This is special revelation. This is how theologians talk about the Bible. This is special or specific revelation about God. God sent His Son into the world. This is specific revelation. This is another call of God, the special calling or the specific calling. This is where God specifies His plan. He he articulates and outlines the fall of man and how did things get this way and His plan of redemption through Christ. God gives this specific or special revelation. And this is a second kind of calling, a special call or specific call. In Acts 17, we find out that it's even worse for people who reject not just the general call but also the specific call. There's a sense in which the punishment is even greater. Yeah, there's a sense in which God overlooks people when they are simply resisting the general call, and that's not overlook in terms of they're no no longer responsible. They're still responsible. They still, by rejecting the general call, will face the damnation or judgment of God. But those who resist the specific call, who hear the gospel, who hear the truth, who sit in church and understand the gospel, their judgment, understandably, is far greater. Times of ignorance, God overlooked, verse 30 of Acts 17, but now, now that Christ has been revealed, now that these truths have been made known, He commands everyone or all people everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man, that's Jesus, whom He's appointed. And of this, He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. So the general call, nature, but also the special call, these are calls that God issues to mankind. Well, there's a third kind of calling, and we see it in the Magi, we see it in Isaiah, we see it in every single person who is genuinely born again. This is called 
the effectual call of God. The analogy of this is when Jesus calls to Lazarus, Lazarus to come forth. He is dead, and it's not just information. It's not just black and white revelation in terms of words on a page. It is a powerful call that raises him from the dead. It enables him and empowers him and compels him to come forth. Now, Jesus says to Lazarus, come forth. And those words come to Lazarus, that revelation, that call comes to him with resurrection power. When God calls a person this way, it is effectual, it is immediate. That person's soul is instantly revived, it is brought to spiritual life, they are regenerated, the Spirit now dwells in them, and they are enabled and compelled then to respond to the gospel. God not only conveys to them the information of the gospel, that information plants itself within the heart of that person, which then enables them and empowers them to obey. This call, this is the effectual call, always results in regeneration and salvation. They are born again at that point, the drawing of God. What does Wesley's great hymn say? Long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound by sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening wet ray. I woke the dungeon flame with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? That word quickening there is what Wesley's talking about. He's talking about the effectual call. That's the power which revives, wakens the soul. It is the effectual call of God. John 6 says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That's the effectual call. John 10, Jesus is in the temple. Jewish leaders begin to question him. Verse 24, Jews gathered around him, said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you. That's special revelation. You've got words on a page. You've got the word of Christ. I told you. And you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. Again, special revelation. But you do not believe. Why? Because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. The whole scope of salvation from repentance, from the call to repentance to eternal security, it all begins with the call of God, the drawing of God on our, hearts, on our hearts. Now, it's important to remember at this point that people don't, go, don't die and go to hell because God capriciously didn't give them the effectual call. They go to hell because they chose wrongly, because they did not repent, because they saw. They had the revelation and refused. They die and go to hell for their sin. But that's not to say that God must do this in the heart of any human for them to be saved. Augustine said, God blinds and hardens simply by letting alone and withdrawing His aid. In other words, He lets them have what they want. So though Herod, and we'll see this in a moment, the Jewish leaders did not receive the effectual call, they were responsible because not only did they have the general revelation, the general call of God, but they also had this special call of God. They had the truth of Scripture in front of them, and they were responsible 
But clearly only the Magi actually had that spiritual, effectual calling of the Spirit on their hearts, regenerating them, causing them to be born again. How do you know if you've been called effectually like that, like the Magi? How do you know? Do you have faith? Do you repent? If you do, you've been called. Do you have a desire to trust in Christ? If you do, you don't have to worry and wonder if God's effectual calls in my heart. I've been called. I don't have to worry about that. I love Jesus. I have faith in Him. I believe in Him. I want to follow Him. If that's your feeling, you've been called. I can't help but stop right here and, and, and wonder if there's some of you right here wondering, am I called? I don't know. Am I a Christian? Have faith in Christ. Believe in Him. You will be saved. We don't, we don't have to wonder about who's God's called are and all that. We don't have to question about that. You just have to proclaim the gospel and believe the gospel. You do that, you're a believer. You're in. The effectual call of God has been upon your heart. This is in contrast, obviously, to the people who respond to Christ differently. Herod, and now, today, the religious leaders of Israel. Herod had the general revelation. The religious leaders, even more so, had the special revelation. They had the scriptural truth, the identity and person of Jesus Christ. They had him right there, and yet they hatefully rejected him. Verse 4 of Matthew 2. Here it is. Assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, quoting from Scripture, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. I actually think that the Jewish leaders here are worse than Herod because they knew and understood and could even quote the Scripture about the Messiah, yet they are indifferent. Of all the people who should be excited, it'll be these people. They just quote Scripture and move on with life. Well, I've taken a long time to introduce this, but let me give you two points today. Two things I would like for us to do as we look at this passage. First of all, it is to behold the shepherd king. That's what this passage is all about, to behold the Messiah, the Messiah who is the shepherd king of Israel and of all who would come to him. What we have in verse 4 is the second mention of a fulfilled promise in the Messiah, the Messiah who's foreshadowed by King David, the, the ultimate king of Israel, the shepherd king of Israel, one of his descendants will be born in the place that David was born, that is Bethlehem. And all throughout Scripture, we see this, these promises, this anticipation of this coming Messiah who would be like David, only better. He would be the ultimate shepherd king of Israel. And of course, the application was to, would be to look at Jesus, to behold Jesus as who He really is, the great shepherd king. Now, to understand this ancient prophecy, we have to sort of get in the minds of the people who were there back then, the people of Israel, how they understand David, the king, and how they would uh, conceive of this great promise. David is and still remains this day for many Jewish people the greatest king of all time, the greatest king of Israel. 
This is true, of course, for Jews in that day, for Jews today, but I think it's true for anyone who reads the Bible. I mean, David becomes the, the, the guy you like. It's kind of like when you read about the apostles, you sort of like Peter. You sort of feel and identify with Peter. You sort of feel like you'd follow Peter. When you read the Old Testament, David seems like one of those guys that you would follow. For one thing, he was normal. He doesn't stand out like Saul did. He doesn't stand out. He's with his brothers, and he's sort of lost. In fact, he's not even there. And when he does show up, he's, small, he's smaller, he's shorter, he's sunburned, sort of a normal kid out shepherding the sheep. We also learned from the story of David that this is a man who had a deep trust in God. We see this when he first faces off and, and wards off some wild animals against the, the flock, but then we see it especially when he wards off the wildest of animals, Goliath, from the flock of God, Israel. He just trusts God. He has an innate belief that God will protect them, that God will uh, uh, cover them and, and save them from the Philistines. We learned that though David had many sins, and some of them terrible sins, he was a man who needed God's grace and relied on that grace. He repented of his sin. He followed after God. He did this so much that he became known as a man after God's own heart. There's a book written about that at some point. I'm not sure who wrote that. We learned that this man ruled as... As, as, a, as a king, the kind of king that we would want, not a dominant, hateful, vicious king like Herod was, but a shepherd king. He took his, his shepherd abilities and he, and he put them in his king work. And so he became not a man who was a jerk and, and, and forceful. His son, Solomon, would take on some of that attitude. He was a man who loved the people, who shepherded them. Shepherded them. He was a pastor, essentially. And we learn that after he was victorious over God's enemies, he ushered in the greatest era of peace that the people of Israel had ever seen. Well, none of that in David's life was an accident. It was all according to God's plan, according to God's own redemptive story that he was building. He was going to give the people of Israel a picture, a, a, a type of the Messiah who was to come. According to 2 Samuel 7, we learn that, that God had chosen David to be a sort of type, to be a picture of the coming Messiah. And, and not only did the people understand this, David himself understood. You read the Psalms and you realize that David himself understood that he was a picture of the coming Messiah. And though he failed many times, he understood that God had chosen him to be a, a picture, a snapshot, a, a shadow of the coming Messiah. Now, if God was doing this in David's life, making him a, a shadow of the coming Messiah, and God was sort of patterning David's life in a way that would foreshadow the Messiah, and David himself was born in this small village near Jerusalem called Bethlehem, where do you think that God would want the Messiah to be born? It would be Bethlehem, right? Let me learn this according to Micah chapter 5, that the shepherd king, the promised Messiah, would indeed be born in the same village that David was from, the, the, the uh, shadow shepherd king would be, the true shepherd king would be born in the city of David in Bethlehem. Micah, you know much about that book. The prophet Micah sort of is going between judgment upon the people of Israel, condemnation for the wicked acts, and then hope. 
And this is one of those sections in Micah 5 where he, where he issues the hope that, that the Messiah would be born. And like David, he would be born in Bethlehem. He would come and shepherd the people, much like David, but only he would do it perfectly. One way you would identify this king, Micah says, is that he would be born in Bethlehem. So this great prophecy pairs Jesus with his shadow, points out that this duty of Christ would be that he would be a shepherd king. He would fulfill all those ancient promises. His promises even that we see in songs that we know well, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. So our application here is to behold our shepherd king, to worship him as such. The fulfillment of those Davidic promises, the Davidic covenant, the ultimate final shepherd king, king of Israel, king of all of us who would believe in him. Of course, in John, we see Jesus himself call himself the good shepherd. Now, who would be most familiar with this prophecy? Maybe the religious leaders, right? Who could be and should be and would be the most thrilled of all to to know that this great ancient covenant is being fulfilled in their midst. Well, it should be the religious leaders. Of all people, it should be the high priest. I mean, everything he does, the, the duties of the high priest, is a foreshadowing of what Christ would be. Everything is given to him. He's doing all of this foreshadowing, this atonement, everything. Of all people, the chief priests... And the scholars of the Bible should be thrilled about the arrival of the great shepherd king, the fulfillment of the promises. And yet they quote the passage to Herod, and they walk away as though nothing is happening. That's the astonishing thing in this passage. Their indifference to the arrival, the advent of the Messiah. The word behold I've used in my first point. It means to look, be amazed. I'm using it again in a different way, though. Behold, look, be amazed at the indifference to the king. That's number two if you're taking notes. Behold, the indifference to the king. It's shocking, really. You read this passage, it's, it's shocking how indifferent they were to the arrival of their king. The response of this group is astonishing. Not only do they not go and worship Jesus, they have the audacity to quote Scripture about it, give the prophecy, and get on with life. They knew the truth. They had the truth. And there's not so much even a hint that they would look into this deeper, that they would inspect, that they would at least be curious at least go to Bethlehem and meet with Mary and Joseph and ask questions and figure this out. They do none of that. They have the truth in front of them. They're the scribes. They are the priests. They have the Bible in their laps. But they're completely indifferent. Herod resisted, but he was only remotely familiar with the Word. They knew the Word. They knew the prophecies. They understood the Messiah. These things were at the tip of their tongues. They were ready to quote it, but they're apathetic. And this is the first time in 
Matthew's gospel, that we began to learn that there's something awfully wrong with the religion of Israel. The religious elite in Israel, there's something completely crooked about them. There's something completely wrong about them. These are the people entrusted with and knowledgeable of Scripture, and yet they are indifferent to the truth of Scripture. We get a clue here that the religion of Israel had been deeply corrupted. With all due human respect, the religion, Judaism today, is still deeply corrupted. And Jesus, as He begins to teach and minister, He begins to point to all that corruption. Of course, they hate Him for it, and eventually they do the same thing that Herod wanted to. They do the same exact thing. They want Him dead. They go after Him. They eventually get what they want. It's like Matthew saying, hey, tuck this away. See these guys who seem to be indifferent? Here's where indifference leads. Indifference is not just a casual apathy. It is a type of hate. It is another way of hating. And eventually, these people will get around to killing. Only they're successful where Herod was not. Jesus comes, He teaches, He heals, He forgives sin... What is revealed that this seed of indifference gives way to hate and frustration, like all indifference to Jesus does. Now, their rejection is not any better. In fact, it's worse. It's more devious than Herod's. It's more vicious than Herod's. It's murderous just like Herod's, but it's covered in a veneer of self-righteousness. It coats itself with religion. Apathy, lukewarmness, in spite of what many assume, apathy toward Jesus is actually a form of hatred. Folks, it's far more egregious to know the truth and be apathetic, to know about Jesus, to hear all these promises, to sit in a sermon and walk away untouched, unmoved, to know about the advent, to know about the atonement that Christ provided, to know that all these things are provided for you and go away, never really worshiping Him. One of our men who used to be here with us but was PCS'd used to always sign his emails, Christ is all. I love that. That should be the motto of every Christian, right? Christ is all. He's everything to me. I think of Him every day. I'm not apathetic about Him. I think of Him every day. I worship Him. I contemplate. What is He, think, what is he thinking? What is He saying? How would Jesus respond? What would Jesus believe? What does Jesus say? You make Jesus the, the subject matter of your life. You become the subject matter expert of Jesus Christ. You study Him. You know Him. You worship Him. So my prayer, again, this week, as it was last week, is that you would learn by negative example. You would, you would see the negative example of these hardened religious people who may at first didn't seem like they were nearly as hateful as Herod was, but in the end, they were even more hateful. And ladies and gentlemen, the fact of the matter is they will be judged even more. My prayer is that you will become like the Magi next week. 
the Sunday before Christmas, we're going to study these magnificent people, the Magi. I believe this is Matthew's whole point to push us away from people like Herod, people like the religious elite, their apathy, and push us toward people like the Magi who come and sacrificially worship Christ and follow them. Let's pray that God would give us the desire to do just that. Lord, we pray that you will have used your word today not simply to give people special revelation, but to also call people effectually into your kingdom. We pray that through the preaching of your word that people will be called to salvation. We pray that this is happening in this moment. pray that people are coming to you in faith and repentance. And Lord, we pray that all of us, even believers, we would remember our first love. We remember this passion, this love, this desire to know Jesus, to make Him known, to learn about Him, to follow Him. Lord, return us to this love. Lord, our constant calling is to do that. As we read Scripture, move us again as You did in salvation. All of us need your spirit to do this, so we ask, Holy Spirit, that you'd move in us. We ask for that in the name of Jesus. Amen.